as we approach John chapter 3, I want to go back into John chapter 2 and kind of get a running head start. We're going to start with verse 23, and then we're going to get into chapter 3. We read verse 23, John 2. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover, this is after the cleansing of the temple and whatnot, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. After cleansing the temple, John tells us that Jesus remained in Jerusalem for the entirety of the feast of Passover. During this week, it's likely that Jesus was engaging the people by teaching, as well as addressing practical needs by performing signs, according to John, or literally miracles. Sadly, we have no record of any of the things that Jesus did during this week. We know he was active. We know he was teaching. We don't have a record of what he was teaching. We know he was performing miracles. We don't have those miracles recorded at all. But that shouldn't surprise us. Once again, at the end of John's gospel, we're told that truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. It's a point that many actually fail to consider But if you were to create a harmony of all four Gospels, eliminating the redundancies, you'd actually come to discover that we only have a record of 36 miracles that Jesus performed. 36, that's all we have. And if, as we noted last Sunday, Jesus' ministry spanned approximately, let's say, two and a half years, 36 miracles, two and a half years, that's really only one 0.2 miracles per month that we have recorded. It's not a lot. Understand, Jesus did so much more than what we have recorded in the Bible. And there are instances like this in the Gospel of John where he lets us know this, but it's just not all recorded for us. John adds here that as a result of these incredible miracles, these signs Jesus was performing, that, quote, many believed in Jesus' name because of what they saw him do. This would therefore explain why we're also told that Jesus did not commit himself to them. Well, kind of lost in the English, the Greek word stating the crowds believed is the same word that's translated, just a couple moments later, commit. It's the same word. And what John is doing is he's making a point utilizing a play on words in the Greek that's totally lost in English. Literally, you could translate it that many believed in Jesus' name, but Jesus did not believe in them. Because Jesus, we're told, knew all men, adding that he knew what was in man, Jesus had no need that a man should testify or literally bear witness of who he was or what he had come to accomplish. It's interesting, but in the next several verses chapter 3, we'll see what was in man becomes a central topic. Jesus knew, and this is important for us to understand, that faith based in what a person sees or what a person saw is in actuality the weakest form of all faith. It's a faith that can easily be discouraged and a faith that can easily fail. If your faith is solely based on what you see with your eyes, the physical realm, it is a very weak faith. These crowds were wowed 
by the miracles. And we would have been too. But the question is, is would their faith remain when following Jesus led to a cross? And we know from the story, spoiler alert, it wouldn't. Keep in mind the context for John 3, which is one of the most amazing chapters in all of the Bible, is that Jesus, we have the changing of the water into wine, he goes to Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, shutting down shop on religion. But then he spends several days teaching the multitudes, engaging the people, and performing miracles. So that's the context for verse 1 of chapter 3. For we're told there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, before we get to Jesus' response and the fascinating conversation that ensues, let's, let's begin by just taking a minute and discussing what we know from the text about this interesting character, Nicodemus. First, if you're a note taker, John introduces Nicodemus, and his name means conqueror, as a Jewish man known specifically by his Greek surname. Nicodemus was not his ethnic name. Since his Hebrew name is not provided for us, it's likely that Nicodemus was a Roman citizen, which was unique in that day for a Jew to be a Roman citizen, which probably then meant that Nicodemus had lots of clout inside and outside of Israel. Nicodemus was similar to another biblical character, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, another Pharisee, who happened to later become known as Paul the Apostle. Because of this Roman surname, his, his, his citizenship, we can also surmise that Nick, good old Nick, grew up in a noble home. He was likely wealthy, educated. Not just ed educated in Jewish law, but educated in Greek culture. Nicodemus was very well-rounded. He knew the ins and outs of the Roman world, but still remained deeply loyal and religious. Remained loyal to his ethnic roots. The second thing we know from the text is that John tells us Nicodemus was a member of the Pharisees. Historically, we know that within Israel, the Pharisees had become a very strong and prominent political party. They actually rose to their prominence during what's known as the Second Temple Period following a failed revolution by Judas Maccabean. In actuality, one of the most famous of all the Pharisees was a first century historian named Josephus. Josephus was a Pharisee. Josephus claimed the Pharisees received the backing of the common man in contrast to the more elitist liberal Sadducees, another political party. The Pharisees were the majority party in Israel. Fun fact, not really related, but you can chew on it, study it on your own. But while it's impossible to say with certainty, there does, this seem, there does seem to be some ample historical evidence that this Nicodemus in John 3 was actually the brother of Josephus. You can study that on your own. Aside from being the party of the working man, the Pharisees were also known to be conservative. They were kind of the fundamentalists of their day. Every Pharisee, to be a Pharisee, you had to have been religiously educated. You, you held to a strict 
literal interpretation of the scriptures. The Pharisees were the religious right. Not only did they hold to this strict interpretation of the scriptures, but they also held the extra biblical narratives, these biblical, extra biblical authorities, the Talmud and the Mishnah, as being divinely inspired as well. The aforementioned Josephus noted in his Chronicles, writing, quote, the Pharisees were considered the most expert and accurate expositors of the Jewish law. Their authority was considered to be so great, they claimed prophetic or messianic authority for their interpretation of Scripture. Not just was Scripture inspired, but their interpretation of Scripture was considered to be inspired. Now, the biggest difference between the Pharisees and their contemporaries is that the Pharisees believed that every Jew was required to obey the laws of purity. Now, these laws laid out in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, they they were applied to the temple service, everything involving sacrificial systems and whatnot. And yet, what's interesting is that they took these laws of purity meant for the temple, and they interpreted and applied them to every Jew all the time. So they took kind of temporal procedures but applied them to practical living, daily life. As such, the Pharisees, and we're kind of covering some of this because they're a consistent opposition to Jesus throughout his ministry. We'll talk about them a lot. But the Pharisees stressed a rigorous obedience to the law of Moses. And not just the law of Moses, but a strict obedience to their Hebrew traditions. And they they held to this position, not just for religious purposes, but the Pharisees felt like we needed to obey the law to stay off assimilation. They were concerned that Jews would assimilate into Greek culture. Those that did were known as Hellenists, Hebrews, ethnically, but had adopted Greek culture. And yet the Pharisees were considered to be Hebraic Jews. Yes, they understood Greek culture, but they were staunchly nationalistic in their thinking. Finally, John tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. Though the Hebrews were an oppressed people under the thumb of Rome, they did have a measure of autonomy. A group of 70 powerful Jewish men, plus the high priest, made up what was known in that day as the Sanhedrin. This group, the Sanhedrin, possessed immense political influence. Matter of fact, the only issue outside of their authority to adjudicate was capital punishment, which was something that the Romans had revoked in 6 AD. As a member of this ruling body, there is no question that our man Nicodemus was highly connected, and he was profoundly influential. Not only was Nicodemus wealthy, educated, religious, an expert in the scriptures, politically savvy. But we can see from our text that Nicodemus was also inquisitive. He was deeply interested in spiritual things, spiritual matters, which is why he comes to speak with Jesus. Now, though we can't say with any type of certainty that Nicodemus himself had been to Bethabara to witness the ministry of John the baptizer, it is safe to assume that Nicodemus had received a a report on all that was happening. In John 1, verses 19 through 27, let me just read you a section of the scripture 
We're told that this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent, that would have been Nicodemus, the Jews being the, the ruling party, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? And he confessed, I am, I am not the Christ. And they asked, what, then are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? That would have included Nicodemus. What do you say about yourself? So John replies, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet said. Now, John writing continues, those who were sent from the Pharisees, also including Nicodemus, asked John, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And Jesus answer, uh, John answered and said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Now, aside from Nicodemus being privy to the testimony of John, a man who claimed to be the forerunner of the coming Messiah. So Nicodemus knew of this. And he also had heard of the incredible crowds that that were flocking to hear John's message of repentance. I'm also confident that Nicodemus had likely witnessed the activities at the end of chapter 2. That he had seen Jesus cleanse the temple. That he had watched this. Likely Nicodemus stood off at a distance and he contemplated what it all meant. As a religious man, Nicodemus knew what was happening in the temple was a racket for all the reasons we discussed last Sunday. He knew that the system needed desperate change. Nicodemus had seen firsthand the greed and the wickedness of the temple cartel headed up by Annas and Caiaphas. Undoubtedly, a part of Nicodemus as he's standing watching Jesus cleanse the temple admired the fierceness of Jesus as he boldly stood up to defend the honor of God and take action. I'm sure that Nicodemus had been in the back of the crowd Listening intently, when in John 2, verses 18 through 20, the Jews asked Jesus, once the dust had settled, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And and I could just see Nicodemus' reaction. When he hears Jesus answer and say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, like everyone else present, Nicodemus found that statement perplexing. The flow of our text suggests that Nicodemus' interest in Jesus deepened the more exposed to the man and the ministry he became. During the remainder of this feast of Passover, Nicodemus was in the the mob. He was in the mob listening to Jesus teach the word of God with authority. Nicodemus had seen these miracles we don't have a record of. He'd seen these signs. What an amazing display of the power of God Nicodemus had to have imagined. What did it mean, he wondered? Who was this man? At some point, and we're not told what specifically, but at some point, something so stirred in Nicodemus' soul that he had to come and personally meet with Jesus. John tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. While we're not given the specific location of the meeting, it's important to point this one thing out. Don't miss it. It was Nicodemus who sought Jesus. Don't don't let that fact, don't overlook it. Like what humility. Like understand the decorum 
would have necessitated a man of Nicodemus' wealth and stature and political standing sending for Jesus, who was a relative newcomer, to come and meet with him. But that's not what Nicodemus does. You see, right from the start, Nicodemus has already realized something important. That there was something about Jesus that made him much greater than himself. Nicodemus coming to Jesus immediately demonstrates a measure of respect without fully knowing who Jesus was or what Jesus had come to accomplish. Nicodemus's approach here intentionally seeks to honor Jesus. Though some biblical scholars believe this meeting occurring under the cover of darkness uh, happened because Nicodemus didn't want anyone to know he was meeting with Jesus as if he was afraid to be identified with him. I, I don't really agree with that, that position. Don't forget, there's mobs around Jesus during the day. You see, I'm more of the opinion that Nicodemus came at night not because he was afraid of being identified. I mean, who was going to challenge him? He was Nicodemus, a ruler. It was his job as a Pharisee to interview, to be inquisitive. No big deal, Jesus was there. I think Nicodemus came at night solely so he could have one-on-one -on -one time. It was the only time that Jesus wasn't surrounded by the multitudes. Notice, in his greeting, Nicodemus confesses two things about Jesus. First, he calls Jesus a rabbi, and then adds that he was a teacher. Now, what makes that interesting is that Nicodemus' affirmation of Jesus being a rabbi is weird when you consider that Jesus wasn't formally a rabbi. Like the whole educational system, there was, there was a process to it. All kids growing up in the synagogue were required to memorize the first five books of your Bible, the Torah. And undoubtedly, there were some of the kids that just couldn't measure up, didn't have the acumen, the intelligence. If at some point in those early years it just, they, couldn't, they couldn't catch on with the memorization, then they would be encouraged to go to their father and learn a trade. If they successfully passed through that first wave, achieving, memorizing the first five books, then the next wave of education at the synagogue would be to memorize the rest of the Old Testament. No doubt that cleared out many. You couldn't couldn't measure up, you were encouraged to go and learn your father's trade. If you were the best of the best and really showed to have, you know, a, an acumen to education and you could pick up the memorization and you were successful in that, the next phase was tutelage. You would seek out a rabbi that you could become a disciple of. And that rabbi just didn't pick and choose who he would want you would actually have to be interviewed by the rabbi. He would ask you theological questions, determine whether or not you would really measure up, if, that, that you could do what he did. Now, it's interesting that there's a lot of language that Jesus ends up using that come right from rabbinic traditions. You see, if the rabbi decided you had the stuff to measure, if you could really, he would, he would call you to be a disciple. He'd even use a phrase, come follow me. And you would do just that. You would follow the rabbi. And it would be over time that you would, you know, learn what your rabbi does and you would sit under his teaching. It would be a communal experience, one-on-one, -on -one, which is why Jesus would call 
men like Peter and John, and, and his, he would call them to be disciples. He would use this phrase, come follow me. But what's interesting is that we know Jesus is what? Jesus the carpenter. So it's interesting that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he uses a, a rabbinical, he calls him a rabbi. But Jesus was a carpenter. So the question is kind of like, if Jesus was a carpenter by trade, how had he assumed this title of rabbi? Now, what's fascinating to me is that Jesus never once uses that title for himself, but he never refused the title when it was used by others. Like, just do your own word study of rabbi, and you'll be amazed how often even Jesus' closest followers referred to him using such a title. It would appear that the way in which Jesus Though he didn't have the official, formal, educational training, the way that he expounded upon the scriptures was so dynamic. The way he taught the Bible was so insightful that the way he, he taught was filled with such an undeniable authority that this formal title of rabbi was just the most appropriate way to refer to Jesus or to describe Jesus not fully knowing who he was. You know, the strangest of all ironies is that the more fitting title wouldn't be rabbi or teacher, but it would be Christ or Lord or Savior. The second thing that Nicodemus affirms here is that Jesus had come from God because, he says, no one could do these signs unless God was with him. While Nicodemus' understanding of Jesus was obviously incomplete, Nicodemus does affirm that there was a divine anointing on Jesus. That Jesus possessed an anointing. Didn't know who Jesus really was, just calls him a rabbi. But, but God's hand on Jesus' life was evident. Now we know that it should have been evident because Jesus was actually God. But at a minimum, Nicodemus was willing to confess that Jesus was acting under the authority and the direction of the Most High God. And that and that alone is an important concession, especially for the conversation that will soon follow. Nicodemus doesn't really know who Jesus is, but he does affirm God's anointing, which gives Jesus the basis to speak accordingly. One final observation before we look at Jesus' response. I find it, I don't know if, if you noticed something kind of weird about what Nicodemus said, but but it's interesting that Nicodemus begins his confession. Look at it. We know. Isn't that weird? It's not just, he's not just speaking for himself. This is not just this, a singular interest. He seems to be representing somebody else as well. We don't know how many people. But what appears is that Nicodemus wasn't the only member of the Jewish Sanhedrin that affirmed these things about Jesus that he was a rabbi come from God. And yet the sad thing is that it was only Nicodemus who allowed his curiosity to manifest into an encounter. We believe these things. Sadly, though, Nicodemus was the only one that came to seek out answers. Well, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What an interesting approach by Jesus. All Nicodemus has done, right? He comes at night. He makes these confessions. 
that Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, who was without question a man who had, who had God's anointing. But Nicodemus hasn't asked a question, has he? He makes two confessions about Jesus, and then Jesus interrupts him and goes right to the reason that Nicodemus had come, the deeper reason, what he hasn't yet articulated. And be, because of Jesus' response, it would seem that the real motive behind Nicodemus' meeting with Jesus centered upon the topic of the kingdom of God. Now, to the Jewish understanding in that day, and really even today, the kingdom of God, when you see this, when you run across this phrase, to the Jewish mind, the kingdom of God was seen as a literal, physical kingdom, whereby the Messiah, the Christ, would rule and reign the world from Jerusalem. And while that is not a false understanding, it is an incomplete understanding. Now, though we could take time this morning to unpack that concept and, and really just let it dominate the rest of, of our time together, for, for purposes of being concise, please note, the kingdom of God that Jesus is referencing here is the spiritual kingdom whereby Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, rules over the hearts of man through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Yes, the kingdom of God, there will be a day, the kingdom of God will be, there will be a physical manifestation of it. But what Jesus is referring to is a spiritual kingdom. Yes, one day it will manifest, but right now it exists in the spiritual realm in the hearts of man. Not only was the kingdom of God the central theme of Jesus' teaching ministry. Let me just give you one example. In Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, we read that Jesus came to Galilee preaching, you want to take a guess? The gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. But you should also note that the topic of the kingdom of God was also central to Jesus' post-resurrection ministry. In Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, we read that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them 40 days, and speaking, or Jesus, teaching the things pertaining to, want to guess, the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded that they not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him again, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The, the kingdom was still front and center in their thinking, in their mindset. But then Jesus says to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons, which the Father has put into his own authority. He doesn't rebuke them. He just says, Now's not the time, because you need to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Now, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus here this night because he is looking, like so many of, of his fellow countrymen, he is looking, actively looking for the physical manifestation of the kingdom of God. He's looking for the Messiah to restore a kingdom, a physical kingdom, a literal kingdom. And this kingdom 
was something that Nicodemus wanted to, quote, see, or better translated, know. Like, not only is Nicodemus interested in when the kingdom was coming, but he wants to make sure he can be a part of it. How can I be a part of the kingdom of God? That's the central nature of his question. Now, imagine Nicodemus's surprise and obvious befuddlement when Jesus answers, when Jesus says, he hasn't asked the question. Jesus knows why he's there. And Jesus says to him, most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like, how did Jesus even know that was the topic on his mind? And aside from that, born again? If you're Nicodemus, you're standing there like, what in the world are you talking about? Now, in the Greek, Jesus begins by saying, most assuredly, right? And what we have here is the repetition of the same word. It can be translated, not necessarily most assuredly, but it can be better translated as amen and amen, or verily, verily. Like Jesus begins his response by completely agreeing with Nicodemus's two confessions. Eugene Peterson's commentary on this passage presents the exchange this way. Rabbi, Nicodemus, we all know that you're a teacher stray from God, he says. No one could do all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts you do if God weren't in on it. So Jesus says, you're absolutely right. It's as though Jesus is telling Nicodemus, yep, you got it. I am sent by God. And since you're curious about the kingdom of God, let me tell you how you'll see it. You must be born again. There's no other way. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In the Greek, Jesus is being both literal as well as emphatic. The word born that's used here, it references the obvious process, the process of physical birth. But this word again, born again, it implies a second time like the first, but specifically and literally from above. That's what the word again means, from above. It's a birth similar to a physical one, but it's of a different origin, a different kind. When Jesus uses this phrase, born again, he's speaking of a rebirth of man, similar to the first, but originating from a higher place. It should also be pointed out what's being implied by using this phrase. It's not rocket science, but a birth is not something one can do. You can't do it for yourself. A birth is instead a work that must be done for you. Like you were physically born how? Via the natural processes of the labor of not your daddy. <laughs> but the natural processes of the labor of your mother. She birthed you. And in the same way, this rebirth, by using this phrase, to be born again, it occurs through the natural processes of the labor, not of you, the one being birthed, but of God, the one doing the birthing. It's a work done on your behalf. Like, let me give you an example. No child exits the womb 
Boom. Check that out. I did it. Wow. I, I rocked that birth. No kid comes out, takes credit for what just occurred. As a matter of fact, as moms will testify, isn't it true that the smoothest of births occur when the child just totally gets out of the way and goes with the flow? Don't, don't try to come out. As a matter of fact, you just kind of tuck your arms in, get your, like, you just let me do it, right? Get out of the way. It'll be easy. Flinging around, foot's coming out. I'm going to wrap myself around this umbilical cord. The more that child tries to help, the worse it is, right? You see, none of my children, Quincy or Theodore, chose to be a member of my family. <laughs> we weren't going to give them that option, honestly. My kids, they were born into my family by a work of Jessica. And two minutes of pleasure from dad. You, you see, I'm just making sure you're awake, just making sure you're with me. It's all that's happening here. Just keeping it real, keeping it real. This is what's important. The work of conception and the work of birth happen apart from your specific involvement. Being born again, as with a physical birth, doesn't necessitate your involvement. Jesus then adds that apart from this rebirth being done for you by implication, if it doesn't happen, he's clear. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless it happens, you can't see. Once again, this word see, it's better understood to mean know, or as it might be easier, to experience. And this word cannot, once again, it's an emphatic term. In the Greek, it's dynamia. It, it means dynamite or power, capability. You see, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that apart from this rebirth initiated by God, the kingdom cannot be experienced. You don't have the power or the capability to experience it without being born again. Jesus is saying, it is the rebirth of man that imparts to man the power to experience the kingdom of God. Verse four, and I would encourage you by saying, we'll, we'll go faster, but we're not. So Nicodemus now says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now there's no question that Nicodemus is actually tracking with what Jesus is saying. And his question, by the way, it's not rooted in skepticism. Like it is a logical question. Like, it's absolutely logical to ask this question with all things considered. Keep in mind, Nicodemus is not questioning Jesus' assertion about the essential importance of rebirth as it relates to the kingdom of God. He's not questioning that. That's not his question, is it? Instead, Nicodemus is wanting an explanation as to the mechanism by which something like that could even happen. Aside from the practicalities, Nicodemus' inquiry it really gets to the core 
of what Jesus is describing. This question, how can a man be born when he's old? I know that comes across a little weird, but it's profoundly deep. It's as though Nicodemus is asking Jesus in response to this topic of of rebirth and transformation. It's as though he's asking Jesus, aren't we the way that we are? Like, is the fundamental change of a person possible? How can one be born if he's old? Can an old man really be born again? Now, isn't this really the most important philosophical question that people grapple with? The ability to change our ways? Like, if we're being honest this morning, it's this question that drives people to a therapist or a guru or, for that matter, religion. In the face of failure, insecurities, or destructive behaviors, people wonder, we want to know, can I actually change my ways? Can I be freed from my anger? Can I be freed from this addiction? Am I bound to the proclivities of my flawed genetics or my sinfulness? Or, we wonder, can being born again really accomplish in my life what it implies? Can this thing that God does really change me? Is it possible for me to become someone I'm not? Is new life tangible? Is the transformation of self attainable? Can I actually become the very person I am not but desperately, desperately need to be? Basically, Nicodemus is asking Jesus, can you really change? So Jesus answers verse 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Once again, the use of this duplicate Greek word translated most assuredly tells us that Jesus is, is full-heartedly agreeing with Nicodemus' question. Which is why I don't think it was like making fun of. Like it was this genuine question. He says, amen and amen. Verily, verily, you're thinking the right way. That's the right question to ask. Can you change? As it pertains to this fundamental transformation of man, initiated by a rebirth through a work of God, Jesus now continues by explaining the how by utilizing a concept that Nicodemus already knows well. It's as though Jesus is saying here, Nicodemus, you understand that flesh naturally begets flesh. Experientially, you know that. So it's with that in mind, please consider that the rebirth I'm speaking of has nothing to do with man's flesh and has instead everything to do with his spirit. The spirit of man, deadened by sin. Can Nicodemus be born again through an internal work of the Holy Spirit? Capital Spirit. He says, that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is lowercase spirit. Now don't forget, Nicodemus is a religious man who understands the ineffectiveness of religious works changing one's internal constitution. The entire basis of his question concerning man's inability to change 
finds itself rooted in his own failure to experience any change through his religious works. Like Nicodemus knew that the sinful flesh only yielded more sinful flesh, that change was impossible if it's the flesh. You see, Jesus here is telling Nicodemus that the transformation of man essential to enter the kingdom of God occurs not in the flesh, the outward man, what you do, but it occurs internally in the spirit. Whereas the human spirit corrupted by sin gives life to the flesh and drives its sinful tendencies, it is the indwelling of the spirit of God that changes everything, that changes man. New birth, therefore new life, Change happens automatically when a person is filled with the Spirit of God. If, if the question is, is, how can I change? The answer is you can't. But God can change you. How? Through His Spirit. Internally. For what is born of Spirit is Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ... And that phrase, in Christ, you can flip it around. That Christ is in you. How? Through the Holy Spirit. So if Christ is in you, Paul says what? He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, capital Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, he's saying this, Nicodemus, the kingdom of God requires man experience two births. The first is a physical birth by water, but the other is a new birth by the Spirit. Man must be born in Adam, but then because death occurred, this inherited sin nature, man must now be born again in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It's a complicated idea. John, uh, Paul writes extensively about this in Romans 5. And he kind of wraps up the whole concept in verse 19. Let me read you what Paul says. He says, For by as one man, lowercase man's, disobedience, many were made sinners. And what he's speaking of is this inherited sin nature from Adam, when you're born physically. Then Paul says, So also by one capital man's obedience... Many will be made righteous. He's speaking of a second birth. We have a first birth from Adam, but a second birth, a spiritual birth, occurring through Jesus. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus answered and said to Jesus, how can these things be? When Jesus tells him, you must be born again. The look on Nicodemus' face must have said it all. In the Greek, this word must, it's in the imperative. It's an essential. It's a non-negotiable. Being born again has to take place if you want to experience the kingdom of God. But then also notice that Jesus says you must be born again. In order to understand how radical an idea this was for Nicodemus, 
don't forget how devoutly religious he was. As a Pharisee, his entire worldview was based on earning God's approval through his works and his energies, his efforts, his dedications, his disciplines. His entire life had been dedicated to a belief system that demanded he obey every single nuance of the Levitical law to find favor with God. From his childhood, Nicodemus had studied hard, memorized the Torah, the prophets. He had dedicated himself to a strict religious discipline. So how shocking it must have been for Nicodemus to hear Jesus not give him instructions on additional things he had to do to enter and experience the kingdom of God, but rather tell him what he must become. You see, new birth, it's something you become. It's something that happens to you. It's not something you do. It's not something you manufacture. New birth, being born again, is a work of God performed on your behalf. And it's in this moment, Nicodemus's mind melts. Like his mind is blown. It's almost as though Jesus can perceive Nicodemus's thoughts. As this man is processing what Jesus is saying, Nicodemus is thinking, if this all occurs in the spirit of man, how do you know it's actually happening? Like, how do you know? Which is why then Jesus exhorts him not to marvel. Don't be amazed. And then he uses the wind as an illustration. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. And then Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying here, Evidence of the internal rebirth of man, though it can't be seen, since it does occur in the Spirit, will make itself evident. How? And an outward change. Like the wind. This natural transformation of everyone who is born of the Spirit will be something the rest of the world will be able to experience. There is a tangible aspect to it. God will perform this work of rebirth, which will then manifest itself through man in a tangible and public way. This entire idea is so unbelievably revolutionary to Nicodemus. His only reaction is not to question anything Jesus has said. Do you notice that? He gets it. But his question, like so many of us, is how can these things be? Is God really good enough? Does he really love me enough to do that? To do that for me? Jesus, this question, how can these things be? Jesus will answer this question beginning in verse 14. He will take Nicodemus back to the Old Testament, specifically to a story we find in Numbers. He'll answer it. But first, Jesus is going to issue a challenge to Nicodemus. And honestly, four of the most radical verses in the entire New Testament, which we're not going to get to, so you'll have to come back next Sunday. As we close, I want to come back to the central concept. Can you change? I guess maybe there's a deeper one. Do you want to change? 
Are you tired of life the way that it is? You being God, you being in control. Look around. How you doing as God? I know for me, I make a miserable God. A terrible one. I'm ineffective. I don't have the power, the capability. I'm flawed. We ruin our own lives. Because we're not cut out to be God. Nor are we cut out to be a savior. So the, the first question is, like, are you tired of life as it is? And if the answer is yes, do you want to change? And you're like, I desperately want to change. And I've tried, Zach. I have tried so hard to change. But I fail at it. Well, you must be born again. You can't change. But you can be transformed. There's a man who was able to take water and transform it into fine wine. That Jesus came to transform sinners into saints. He came to take those that were lost, he came to find them. Those that were broken to heal them. Jesus can change you. Well, how, Zach? By filling you with his spirit. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how that works. And, and as your pastor, I will say, I don't either. The spirit of God coming inside of me, changing me. I don't know how it works, but I can tell you it works. Because my life changes for one reason. It's got nothing to do with me but everything to do with the Spirit of God inside of me. And so this morning, if, if any of these truths...